Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be joined by Daniel Ellsberg. We're going to be discussing the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. This year was the 60th anniversary of that crisis. And perhaps there's never been so much discussion of that crisis uh, since then because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's been many references that we are in such a dangerous situation again. So just a few seconds, we'll be joined by Dan Ellsberg. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website. Uh, we can't keep doing this if you don't do that. And, and we're reaching in near the end of the year. So people, some people are considering uh, making some donations. We are a 501c3 in the United States, uh, nowhere else, but there we are. So we'll be back in just a few seconds. On October 23rd, Reuters reported that Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu spoke with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin for the second time in three days and held a flurry of calls with three other counterparts from NATO countries. They discussed the situation in Ukraine, which is rapidly deteriorating. Reuters continues, the Russian Defense Ministry said of Shoigu's call with French Defense Minister Sebastian Lecornu, quote, it is trending towards further uncontrolled escalation, unquote. Shoigu spoke separately to Turkey's defense minister and Britain's Ben Wallace. Shoigu's ministry said he had told his French, Turkish, and British counterparts of Moscow's concern that Ukraine could detonate a, quote, dirty bomb, a device laced with radioactive material. Reuters reports that Russia has provided no evidence to substantiate such a claim. Following those calls, the top U.S. and Russian generals held talks by phone for the first time since May. Get that. The top generals between the United States and Russia, which are supposed to be able to communicate in case there's a miscalculation, a mistake, a perhaps nuclear accident, they haven't talked since May. So that's something that at least they've talked now. At any rate, on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, on October 30th, Reuters reported that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said there were similarities to the 1962 crisis, largely because Russia was now threatened by Western weapons in Ukraine. Now joining us to discuss Lavrov's comparison of the Cuban Missile Crisis to, to, to today's war in Ukraine is a man who was involved at the time, and has studied that almost nuclear war for 60 years. Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers in 1971, worked for RAND Corporation at the time of the 62 crisis, developing U.S. nuclear war plans. He now joins us from Berkeley, California. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Lavrov is saying that just as the U.S. found it justified to create a blockade, which is an act of war, even at the time they called it a quarantine, but it was a blockade and it was an act of war. Lavrov is saying, just as the Americans were justified in confronting the threat of nuclear weapons in Cuba, Russia is justified in invading Ukraine to defend against the U.S. and NATO using Ukraine to threaten Russia with nuclear weapons. Is he right? Did uh, Lavrov actually say that the U.S. had been justified in what it did in 1962? Well, maybe maybe he didn't word the, use the word justified, but he certainly implied that 
it was understandable that the Americans did it, so it is now that the Russians do it. At a minimum, he was saying that there's a similarity in the situation to some extent with roles reversed, and that's true. That's not only uh, very, it's not very reassuring. It's uh, quite ominous in, in many ways that Foreign Minister Lavrov and President Biden are agreeing rather unusually on the fact that the situations are similar and that they both involve nuclear risk, the possibility of Armageddon. Both sides are saying that. It's true. Now is then, to some degree, both sides are playing nuclear chicken, which was an analogy that Bertrand Russell made in pleading to both Khrushchev and Kennedy not to get into war over the blockade. I'd be surprised if Lavrov is now saying that the blockade was justified or even that it was legal. It was neither. Khrushchev at the time said it was piracy, it was against international law in the absence of an actual declared state of war. And that was true then or now. What the U.S. was doing in blockading in the open seas was totally illegal and definitely an act of war. At first, Khrushchev responded right until the day of the blockade, two days later on October 24th, that he was going to order his ships to uh, defy the blockade, to keep moving altogether toward Cuba and uh, suffer risk attack if necessary. And indeed, that would have been uh, within international conduct altogether. So it was understood on the U.S. side that what we were doing was against international law. That's why on the very day of the speech, having conferred on this for almost a week earlier, they finally decided to use the word quarantine to distinguish it from the Berlin blockade of 1948, to which Kennedy alluded, by the way, in his speech. And uh, called it a, a it was an illegal act of war more seriously given what Khrushchev was saying, which was not surprising that he would not observe it, uh, it was risking war. Why were we doing that? Well, the implication given to the American public at that time was very similar. It didn't actually use the word existential risk, as Putin has been doing about the prospect of Ukraine moving into NATO, but uh, he implied it. It wasn't a well-known, I wasn't a phrase in common use at that time. We're hearing it all the time now. But um, the implication was that the missiles, which had just been, which had been predicted by some people for months even, uh, were actually there and that this constituted, he didn't use again the, the phrase, first strike force against the U.S., that is a surprise attack capability, but he strongly implied it. He called it offensive missiles, which affect our security. Well, whether you call them offensive or not, and there was a reason for a basis for Khrushchev saying these weapons were for the purposes of defense of Cuba. But did they constitute a new threat to the security of the United States? When I was called in on the 22nd evening and, and arrived in the 23rd, the day after the president's speech in the Pentagon, the first thing I did, uh, just at the beginning of my half a week, uh, five or six days there, sleeping in the Pentagon several of those nights, was to conclude that even though the missiles in Cuba would 
bypass our ballistic missile early warning system coming from the south. And although they had the capability to give a virtually no warning attack on Washington or on SAC headquarters, that had been true for uh, a long time. Russian submarines, Soviet submarines offshore, could deliver a no warning attack on Washington. That had been true for some time. And for that reason, among others, uh, Eisenhower had delegated the authority to use nuclear weapons in case Washington was, quote, decapitated or communications were cut off. The Russians came to do the same, what they called a dead hand system that would assure that if Moscow was hit, as it could be, uh, from um, NATO territory or uh, U.S. territory, or a variety of ways, NATO submarines, for example, uh, U.S. submarines that were feared to be delivering attack in 1995, which led Yeltsin to consider uh, launching his own forces preemptively. Uh, they were both living with this possibility before then and after then, till now. Definitely an existential risk to the world. The whole world is living under this existential threat for, uh, in particular, since both sides acquired doomsday machines no later than the mid-60s. But uh, the U.S. had one earlier than that. Th threatens the world, yes. Everyone's at risk. You and I are at risk all the time, and especially in case of a direct conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union or Russia, as was happening then. Now, one difference then, a significant difference, uh, is that right now bullets are being fired, missiles are being fired, shots, people are dying, people are killing, but not yet between U.S. and Russian soldiers. That actually has never happened overtly in a way that is acknowledged. So just to sum up, the, the, the fact that there were uh, tactical nuclear weapons, which the Americans didn't even know about till later in Cuba in 1962, uh, there were weapons that, that it didn't actually change the balance of power. It didn't increase the national security risk of the United States. In fact, Robert McNamara at the Sec Secretary of Defense apparently said at the time and later said publicly, that this actually wasn't a military threat to the United States. It was more a, pol a domestic political problem for the, for the uh, American government. That's quite true. As I was just saying, that was the conclusion I reached on October 23rd when I looked at those missiles as having spent some years now uh, analyzing the military significance of uh, postures on both sides. And my conclusion was this didn't make any significant difference. Now, that was my judgment, but it turned out that Secretary of Defense McNamara, as you say, had made exactly the same judgment on the first meeting of the so-called XCOM, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council that Kennedy had called into being at the point when um, they discovered the missiles. He said, as you say, this is not a military problem. It's a political problem. Why was it a political problem? Well, there were certain aspects with our alliance, but predominantly they were facing a midterm election, exactly as now. And the Republicans had been calling for months, actually, for action against the overt public buildup of some Russian forces not admitting missiles 
uh, Khrushchev gave the false impression that he was not sending missiles that could reach the United States. And uh, because he sent this in a very confidential private channel, the kind that we have to hope is going on right now, uh, you know, uh, various diplomatic channels, uh, God knows there is not sufficient open negotiations going on right now, but in this particular case, Khrushchev used a confidential channel to lie to the president, and the president believed him more than a lot of uh, other people in the Pentagon. So he was, in fact, outraged and humiliated when his brother, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who'd been in charge uh, of covert operations against Cuba for the last year, uh, was shown the photographs, and I, I talked to the man who showed him the photographs and who told me, uh, seeing, showing the missiles there, that the administration had up till that moment uh, been denying uh, that they had any evidence of such a thing. He didn't expect it. Bobby said, shit, shit, shit. And his further comments, like those of his brother, Jack Kennedy, were almost entirely political, domestic political. President Kennedy's first reaction in bed when he was told the news by McCharles Bundy was, this makes Senator Keating president. In 64, he meant. And Keating was a very well-respected uh, Republican senator who had been saying as early as September that we should blockade the island to keep more uh, Russian material from getting there. And then on October 10th, four days before our U-2 discovered actually the photos, took the photos of the missiles, on October 10th, uh, Keating announced there are missile sites right now in Cuba. And days after that, George Bundy was saying, we have no such evidence. We have no evidence and no expectation there will be such a thing. To this day, we don't know exactly where Keating got that information. His information was very good. And uh, probably from people in the Pentagon who wanted an invasion of um, Cuba, and they were, they were legion. The entire Joint Chiefs of Staff was very anxious to see that happen because they'd been planning for it for over a year at that point, conducting massive exercises, including right at that very time, at that very moment, an exercise of Marines uh, that were supposedly uh, going to overthrow a communist government in an island uh, headed by Ortsak or Castro spelled backwards. And that was given to the public. So Kennedy was actually hearing from Republicans that he should be invading this island. This before, even before any suggestion that missiles were there or going to be there. And then uh, having Keating actually say they were there and they were, but the president was not yet, had not yet acknowledged that fact, been forced to acknowledge it. He was in an extremely embarrassing situation, which meant that the Republicans would probably take uh, the Senate as well as the House, uh, perhaps, and definitely that his prospects of even being nominated or winning two years away in 1964 now looked extremely low. So he had a political problem. And I believe, by the way, that the reason he took that act of war of the blockade was that he had to do something uh, that looked aggressive. He'd been called weak on this subject, soft. He had to show he wasn't soft, he was tough. He had to do something that was military 
illegal and risky. And the blockade was the least risky thing that he felt he could do. So the, the plans for the invasion of Cuba, and there was a, a secret planning group led by Robert Kennedy, this was all in the works before there was any knowledge, or in fact, before there were nuclear weapons in Cuba. Yeah. Then when Khrushchev puts weapons into Cuba, Khrushchev must be aware of these plans for invasion. So they really are there for defensive purposes. So this idea that the lesson to be learned from Cuba is that a country needs to protect itself when missiles are close. So Lavrov is arguing that's applicable to Ukraine. Uh, but as we know, there's already NATO countries. I mean, Estonia is already on the border of Russia. Um, and even and actually even nuclear weapons in Ukraine, if in fact they ever did put them there, and there's no suggestion, one, that Ukraine actually could become a member of NATO. There's at, at, certainly even the Chinese have said uh, there's not going to be a, a consensus in NATO to allow Ukraine in. And two, there's been no suggestion of putting nuclear weapons in Ukraine. But even if they did, would that change the actual balance of nuclear threat for Russia? Would it confront Russia with an existential threat that it hasn't been facing for years? No. Uh, just as the missiles in Cuba, as the JFK uh, cabinet or XCOM really knew pretty well, uh, was that putting us in some new jeopardy that we uh, was illegal for them to do on the one hand and was actually increased our level of danger? And the answer from the Secretary of Defense and others was, including me at my staff level, was no. Uh, so it not only made what we were doing legal or other than aggressive in terms of planning a possible invasion of Cuba, but it meant that uh, there was no real excuse for it in terms of national security, which you had to claim uh, to justify aggressive moves and dangerous moves like this. The same is happening right now. Uh, has the U.S. ignored Russia uh, humiliated it in a variety of ways, uh, both the attack in the Gulf War, the uh, near ally, the uh, Libya uh, war, which we had assured um, uh, Russia would not go to the point of regime change, expansion of NATO onto the borders of Russia, the placing of ABM sites that could be turned into cruise missile sites against Russia on near to the border of Russia in Poland and Romania. Yes, a lot of insults, humiliations, irritations, and a general feeling that the U.S. was acting as if it were still or were the unipolar hegemon of the world, essentially. It had no, no need to do, uh, as Putin keeps complaining, to take account of uh, Russian interests or, or uh, belief in national security. And by the way, even though these missiles nearby didn't really change what had happened, you know, what had been in place for years before that, that doesn't mean that the public in these countries would look at it the same way or that political rivals would look at it the same way. Were the uh, Republicans ready to say, and even some Democrats, uh, this threatens our national security, you have been, you've got to be replaced. 
Yes, the general charge, not because the national security was really at stake, but because that was a plausible, handy tool to beat the incumbent with. And both of them did have to. I have to take account of that. As I understand, by the way, uh, the Communist Party in Russia, which is what, to the left of Putin or to the right of Putin? Hard to say. In terms of nationalist terms, to the far to the right. uh for years here on this, and definitely in recent months, uh, invade Ukraine, take take it over. Uh, this is part of his domestic uh, situation. Okay, let me boil this down to the, the basic similarity, I think, two, two points. There is a genuine risk, as Lavrov said, or as Shoigu is said to have said to Austin, that's Minister Austin, of this escalating out of control to an all-out war, which would lead to nuclear winter, which would kill nearly everyone uh, within a year or so because of the effects of nuclear winter, the smoke from burning cities in the stratosphere, which would end harvests by cutting off sunlight. Okay, so everyone is at stake in this. Are both sides actually taking the risk of this, as both of them claim, and you know, the risk is involved? Yes, they are as in Cuba. Uh, each side, they didn't know of nuclear winter then, but they knew that the Northern Hemisphere would pretty well go uh, And uh, at that point. And yes, they were each taking a risk of that for essentially domestic political reasons. This connection between you know, the dangers of nuclear apocalypse and domestic politics is, I think, the most critical point of trying to understand the Ukraine situation. Uh, Take the American politics. Why on earth would Biden not have made it clear that Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO prior to the invasion? Everybody knows that there won't be consensus to have Ukraine in NATO. In fact, why didn't the Ukrainian government Why didn't they say we're going to withdraw our application to NATO because we know we're never going to get accepted anyway, and it's just a provocation. But for the same reasons, uh, the Ukrainians are worried about their domestic politics. Biden's worried about being called weak on uh, Russia. And, And why is Putin so concerned about something that isn't going to happen for all the same reasons you just said? He's got enormous pressure coming from his nationalist right not to look weak on NATO, even though objectively it would make, one, Ukraine can't get into NATO in any foreseeable future, and two, and even if they did, why would that be any different than Estonia, Estonia, which is right on the Russian border, is already in NATO? But this, they all depend on their own nationalist narratives, and they got to keep looking like the great heroes of their own nationalism. Here's some similarities, I fear. What, from 60 years of intensely really studying this problem and keeping up with the new information that comes along. I conclude what very few people believe for decades, the following, that neither party not only wanted nuclear war or even conventional war, each was determined not to get even into conventional combat to the point of Russians and Americans shooting at each other. They were determined not to do that. They were both making threats that implied they were fully ready, and they were making every preparation for it every on both sides. But ha- hang on for one sec. When you say that, when you say they, 
You mean Kennedy and Khrushchev, because there were certainly people on the Joint Chiefs that actually wanted nuclear war. Kennedy and Khrushchev, I believe, were both determined not to go to conventional war because it would be too dangerous to spiral into nuclear war. And they were, yet, they were making threats that implied they were ready and they were making preparations entirely and leading their, their people on both sides to believe without really any doubt that their nation was preparing and ready to go to conventional war and even nuclear war. I believe they were both bluffing now and had no intention of actually allowing this shooting by their, by their um, orders uh, to begin. So, no danger then, right? And yet, despite their determination on both sides in the bluff, I believe they did come within a hair's breadth of blowing up the world, of causing nuclear winter, which they didn't even know about yet. Let me read you a quote from Lavrov's, uh, where he, it's very, it's kind of very intriguing because in, at least in the news reporting, it doesn't quite explain what he means, but maybe I'll take a guess and see what you think. So Lavrov in this recent statement of his, he says, quote, I hope that in today's situation, President Joe Biden will have more opportunities to understand who gives orders and how. Is, is he suggesting that it, that maybe there was a point where it may not have been Kennedy giving the orders? It might have been the Joint Chiefs who wanted war and that Biden better be uh, uh, wary that a similar situation could exist. And maybe the same thing in Russia, that, you know, maybe it might not be up to Putin at some point. You know, I don't know what Lavrov meant by that statement, as you say, it is enigmatic, and it actually is is hard to know exactly what he what he meant by that. I would say both sides came to understand that their orders might not be obeyed, that their own subordinates were actually doing things that had not been ordered. They both knew that, but the risk was much greater than they realized. They were accepting that, and it worried them. But they each thought, I think, that they had the situation until late October twenty seventh. 28th, that's a Saturday and Sunday of the crisis, until Khrushchev came to understand he had lost control, definitely. And we'll come, we'll come to that. And that caused him, fortunately, to jump back. Now, I think Lavrov in general, let me make another guess here, when he said that they should act like the two parties in the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was referring to the fact that they're generally understood to have come to a peaceful compromise. Uh, acceptable to both. Uh, that was uh, better than going to war, in which they didn't want to go to war anyway. Actually, that's not what happened. In this game of nuclear chicken, it so happens, um, Kennedy did win. It's possible to win that. It's true that Khrushchev uh, accepted a deal which I think he would not have found acceptable, would not have done, except that he knew that Castro in particular, had thrown this situation out of control. Now, by the way, Lavrov is claiming right now, and the Russians are claiming, that the Ukrainians, and he's not accusing the U.S. of this, interestingly, of the Ukrainians of preparing a dirty bomb to use, a high-explosive bomb that would spread radioactivity around some area, uh, and perhaps blame it on the Russians. As others have pointed out, and the U.S. says, no, we have no evidence of this. There is no evidence for it. We don't believe it. Uh, and it, indeed, 
why would they do that? It's very hard to imagine why they would irradiate part of their own territory, unless, as Russians claimed, uh, they wanted the U.S. to think that uh, the Russians had done this and cause an escalation of the U.S. involvement. Is that likely? No, I would say not likely. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. And meanwhile, the Russians, of my past experience, and meanwhile, uh, the U.S. is saying, these are very ominous statements by Russia. We think they're preparing to do some false flag thing themselves, do something that will justify Russia in escalating, perhaps using a small nuclear weapon. Well, that could have some logic. Uh, a nuclear weapon has gone off in Ukraine. They're blaming it on Russia. Uh, but uh, the situation is getting out of control. We've got to get it back under control by scaring them and escalating some way. The point is, <laughs> both sides have experience of false flag or of lying, let's just say, of lying and keeping secret what's going on. And by past experience, it could well be more than 60 years before we have really the kind of evidence we should have right now about what either side is doing. They are both very good at lying and keeping secrets. Let's go back to this most dangerous day, which could be reproduced 60 years later, to what we knew and what we didn't know. And the reason we didn't know on both sides, by the way, the we here humans, is because both sides were keeping secrets to a degree that uh, some of which is understandable because they were concealing uh, illegal acts and risky acts, and some of which is just hard to explain. But they did keep each other in the dark as to what was going on for a variety of reasons and, uh, and often lied about it. Uh, give an example. Uh, Khrushchev assured Kennedy that the surface-air missiles, uh, which were manned by Soviets uh, against the people hitting our U-2s, and the anti-aircraft were totally under his control. So don't worry about it. You know, I control those. You don't have to feel that the, these uh, flaky Cubans or uh, emotional Cubans have any possibility here. That was false, as he learned on Saturday morning, October 27th, when Castro, against his request and demands not to provoke the Americans by firing at them on low-flying planes, which they hadn't been doing all week. We were crisscrossing Cuba with low-flying reconnaissance planes. Khrushchev had said, don't do this, and Castro, in effect, said, fuck off, actually. This is our country. Uh, they're about to invade. This is our airspace, and we're going to fire. And he started firing. In fact, hit two of our planes during that, though he didn't down them. Meanwhile, the surface-to-air missiles, which we took for granted, were under Khrushchev's control, as he believed, and as he told us, shot a U-2 down. So that was looked at as a deliberate escalation by Nikita Khrushchev. And that was ordered. That was ordered by a Soviet commander, right? Not by Khrushchev. Commander, because the firing had commenced by Castro, and he thought, "Well, the war is going on, sort of." And they tried to get uh, um, uh, authorization from the general in charge in Cuba, General Pleyev. He was unattainable, un, uh, inaccessible, and so two generals decided on their own. Okay, we'll do what Castro is doing to the low-flying planes. We'll do to the 
large flying plane. And when they explained this, uh, when Khrushchev learned that day that a U-2 had been shot down, the one and only case of an overt killing of a Russian or American by the other side. One American, Anderson, was shot by Russians, but not under order of Khrushchev. However, that brought things to a real climax, uh, for sure. But let me go a little further on that day. Bobby Kennedy, as he told me in 1964, when I was doing a study of communications in nuclear crises, and give a bottom line on that, communications are extremely unreliable. These communications, what we regard as signals, are not even perceived by the other side or are totally misunderstood by the other side for reasons that would be understandable if we knew how they were thinking at all or how they seen us. But in any case, I was doing this study and I interviewed Bobby Kennedy. And he told me something that has never been focused on by any of the studies since. Part of what he told me actually was this implicit trade, which was not a quid pro quo. It was not, you know, we were not doing it for them, but we would get our missiles out of Turkey, like the missiles in Cuba, but it must be totally secret. So I learned that in 64, uh, well before it came out years later in various ways. But he earlier told me uh, things that are in his account, but nobody has focused on. He said, you have taken first blood, true, first and last blood, till now. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. Probably, I wouldn't be surprised if some Americans there covertly in Ukraine have been killed. We haven't acknowledged that they're there. The Russians haven't claimed credit for it. So that hasn't happened yet. That either side has to front, confront their public and say, our blood has been lost by the other superpower. Okay. He said, now, however, the generals are itching for a fight. This is Tobrinin's account, the ambassador, and uh, almost pro very probably true. They are itching for a fight. That was certainly the case. It's not easy to know, to paraphrase, that Kennedy can really hold them back much further. So Kennedy said, if you shoot one more plane down, he says, we will have to hit at least the surface air missiles and the aircraft and probably everything will hit everything there. It will go. There were some things Bobby didn't know when he said that, but that's what he said. And so I said to, uh, he had told me that he had told Brennan for Khrushchev, the missiles must be out. Uh, he said, this is not an ultimatum, which is what a diplomat says when he's delivering an ultimatum, because it's understood you can't back down from an ultimatum, a dated warning. A day from now, today, you can't do that. So this is not an ultimatum. I'm just telling you that we will attack in 48 hours if they're not gone. And we need to know an answer by tomorrow. Said, Again, this is not an ultimatum, but it's a request that you tell us in 24 hours. This was Saturday evening. So I said to Bobby, well, so there were two threats here, two, two warnings, right? Uh, one, They'll go in 48 hours if you don't take them out. Two, first, they go right away if you shoot another plane down. It was now night in the Caribbean when he was saying this. We weren't, we had chosen not to send flights that night because dropping flares was regarded as 
maybe a little too risky to make them think the war was already on. So um, they were going to be sent the next day, though. And you shoot one more down, and this is all going to blow. Now, there were some things Khrushchev knew at that time, not Dobrynin, uh, that Bobby didn't know, and Jack Kennedy didn't know, and actually nobody over here knew at that point. One, Khrushchev had not shot the U-2 down. One of his generals had, for reasons he couldn't yet figure out. When he heard about it, that they'd done it because uh, the, the Cubans were firing, he said, as his son reports, who does that general report to? Who does he obey? Is he on our side or Castro's? Uh, what's going on here? So, and actually, Sergei told me in this in this office, uh, Khrushchev's son, that he was with his father. This was the most frightening part of the crisis for him when he learned that U two had been shot down. Immediately, he said that they're going to respond, which indeed, the XCOM had agreed earlier to do if a U two was shot down. So the the bottom line here is Kennedy and Khrushchev did want to find a way out. They did want to avoid nuclear war, and eventually they did. But in spite of, you know, in the end, two rational men deciding not to create the apocalypse, something was happening on a Russian submarine that could have ended the world anyway. So, no. so just quickly tell us about that and what is the dangers of miscalculation now? From the very beginning of the blockade, we had become aware that there were Soviet submarines in the Caribbean. One of them actually between two of the ships that was moving toward the blockade line, allegedly uh, from the Russian side, to protect those ships had they chosen to uh, resist the blockade. And uh, Kennedy was extremely concerned at beginning operations by fighting a Russian warship, a submarine. He said anything but that. And McNamara said, we we can't just let it be there. We've got to have it surface uh, or be under our control because it's too dangerous to our ships. And uh, he said, however, we are have made an arrangement. We've told the Soviet defense ministry that we will drop signal grenades, practice depth charges, basically hand grenades uh, that will explode in the water, be picked up by their sonar. And uh, it will do two of them or three of them or something. And that will mean they should come to the surface and identify themselves. Now, remember, this is not part of the international law. You know, you find a submarine, you force it to the surface. Uh, no, but under these situations, you're saying, yes, this is what we have to do. So they're very worried, but then the ships turned back at that point. So that that point seemed to be over. But then later, uh, on September 27th, Saturday, while Bobby was talking to Dobrynin, or at a little before that, actually a couple hours before that, but it extended, U.S. destroyers were trying to force a Soviet submarine they identified to the surface by dropping what they regarded as practice grenades. But the sailors who'd been doing this at some level of command, I'm not sure how high it went. They'd been doing this kind of thing for days, tracking submarines, and they'd gotten tired of feeling that their their little grenades, their hand grenades, were uh, uh, exploding so far away. They were just like firecrackers. So they did the little uh, device of putting them in cardboard toilet paper rolls 
uh, on the theory, this is like a hand grenade now with a uh, hinge that flies off an arms grenade, uh, sets off a detonation thing. They put them inside the toilet rolls so that they would, the, the roll would, they figured, it actually worked, would disintegrate as it came down several hundred feet. And instead of firing just high above the surface, it would fire right next to the submarine or even on it. Now, this was on the sub assumption, which they did make, oh, it won't harm the submarine, even as McNamara said, if it actually hits the submarine, which they virtually did. Well, the people in the submarine who reported later described it, I'll just say it briefly, like being in a steel drum that is being pounded with sledgehammers. They were rocking back and forth in the thing. The grenades were going off. They felt they were under attack on this thing. So actually, here's what we've now learned, contrary to a story that's been around for 20 years, that is 40 years after the crisis, 20 years ago, uh, which was that the submarine commander under this attack uh, proposed to uh, fire, uh, arm and fire his nuclear torpedo, which no American knew or guessed the subs were armed with, uh, nuclear torpedoes, which could have taken out the carrier in that flotilla along with some destroyers. Um, he said to arm the torpedo, and the phrase used was reported by the head of the Signals Intelligence Group on the submarines, Orlov, said, to hell with these people, we're, we're tossing, doing somersaults down there. The war has begun, and um, we must, um, and we'll take them with us if we go down. We won't just serve it. Now, actually, what we learned just this month is that Orloff's story, which he didn't claim to have heard firsthand, but he heard it, he was on the summary, was mistaken. Archip the uh, head of the flotilla has reported now, and it just came out this week, 60 years later, uh, from the National Security Archive, that Savitsky, the commander of the sub, did have to serve, uh, did surface because he had to recharge his batteries. Um, they were dropping like flies, they said, by carbon dioxide uh, in the sub. The temperature was well over 100 degrees inside the sub, and they, they had to recharge the batteries and go up. He went up to the conning tower with, just behind him, Arkhipov, uh, who was, uh, or in front of him, I'm not sure which. Arkhipov was the same rank and was head of the three the four submarine flotilla. But Savitsky had control of the submarine. He goes up into the conning tower, gets on the bridge, and finds surrounded by destroyers with searchlights on him, helicopters fly, oh, not only helicopters, but fixed-wing aircraft flying just over the conning tower, and bullets are coming into the water on what turns out to be both sides. They were not on the submarine. They were signaling. They were signaling to this. Archipo uh, Savitsky says, we're under attack, naturally. And he goes down the uh, from the conning tower and is yelling out, "Arm the torpedo, uh, the special the special weapon." They called it. He said, "Arm it." Arkhipov, the flotilla leader, stays up on deck a minute longer. He's behind Savitsky. This is his account, and sees they're signaling. They're not actually firing at us. They're firing alongside us. A little a little signal 
is going on is my old mentor, uh, Tom Schelling of Harvard, you know, Nobel laureate in economics, would have said, this is communication by bullets. Uh, it was not his, not his best moment, actually, Schelling's. But that's what was happening. Artipov deciding that they were not under attack, which they appeared to be at first, goes down and convinces Savitsky not to arm a torpedo, not to send the torpedo. But he had, on his way down, given the order. So in other words, the story, I won't go through the whole other story, but the story basically is right. Arkhipov did save the world at that point, which is why we're here. We wouldn't be here otherwise, but it wasn't. So the, so the point here is, in the midst of these kinds of crises, misunderstanding, miscalculations can end the world anyway. So what does that tell us about today and what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and all the talk of tactical nuclear weapons? All right, let's make, I'll make an exact analogy. First of all, in this, there are a number of analogies, but here's one. Could Putin believe it uh, optimal, successful, the right thing to do to send a small nuclear warhead uh, in some circumstances after a false flag, after a dirty bomb, or after something, or if he is faced with defeat in the Donbass, which he has now claimed as part of Russia, and has said, we defend Russia, now including the Donbass and Donetsk and Luhansk provinces and Crimea, which is occupied since 2000, is annexed since 2014, called it Russia, to keep those, we will defend them with nuclear weapons. Now, do you really defend with nuclear weapons? Not if the other side answers back with nuclear weapons, but is it possible that they won't? Well, actually, yes. For the first time in my lifetime, and I'm glad to hear it, uh, people in Washington are saying, well, we don't have to respond right away with a nuclear weapon if he uses one. That's true. That's good. Glad to hear it. Might Putin be counting on that? Well, Petraeus could say, has said, General Petraeus, um, well, then we would use conventional forces to destroy all of his forces, directly NATO now, U.S., in Ukraine, possibly even in Russia. Destroy his armed forces, but just come back to Ukraine. Well, that would be what a strong response, yes, non-nuclear. And what would happen then? Uh, the U.S. might draw back from doing that on the grounds that it looks pretty likely to blow the world up and get into negotiations. Putin could ask, let's, you know, stop this. Let's do something dramatic. This is getting out of hand. We could act like Khrushchev in October 27th saying, no more bargaining. We've got to end this. It's, it's getting out of control. Could Putin imagine, take that risk? Actually, Yes, from this experience, these leaders faced with domestic uh, setbacks, enormous, losing their job, feeling an existential risk to their administration, their regime, their time in office, not to the country as a whole. Could they risk blowing the world up? Well, yes, uh, they did, not only on this occasion, but in 62, that's what it tells us. Does 
Uh, does it tell us, by the way, that, well, don't worry, the people in charge on both sides are mature, responsible men like Kennedy and Khrushchev, and they'll make a deal. It's possible. Both sides were ready to make a deal. Within a few days, after we bargained some more with preparations for all-out war, and getting to the point now where a third party comes in, it so happens there is a third party in this one, Ukraine. Ukraine, the one who feels that they have an existential risk here, uh, if not to their to the whole country to begin with, when they're going after Kiev and are preparing to assassinate Zelensky. Yes, uh, their whole country was at stake. Is it an existential threat, a warning to use, uh, I'm sorry, to lose the Donbass control, leave that under Russian control? Well, one could say no, they've been occupying it for years anyway, and uh, not happy situation, but we've lived with it. But will Ukraine say that? Will Zelensky's uh, supporters or his people and his non-admirers in Ukraine accept that? I would think his own life is at stake on that one, accepting almost the only deal we can imagine Putin uh, agreeing to. Now, there's an edge there uh, you can you can bargain about. He has declared the whole Donbass, Donetsk, and Putin as part of Russia. But actually, he's not occupying a good deal of it, especially in Donetsk. So is the deal, if there is a deal, that he gets to control the part he doesn't yet control? Does he get to control the part that he didn't control last year, but does control now, etc.? There's room here for bargaining, but there's also room for various people to say in, in Ukraine or Russia or here, we can't accept that. That's an existential threat to us, to our prestige, to our sphere, to our equality. Dan, the, the, the Russians are saying, Lavrov has said, they're willing to negotiate with the United States, but not, to begin with, include Ukraine. Should the United States agree to that? Well, that's what was happening in Cuba. Uh, neither side was engaging Castro at all. And Castro didn't like that uh, and was uh, moving on his own in various ways. Could that happen with Ukraine? Could we make a deal? Yes, with uh, Russia. Could we deal separately with Russia? Of course. Um, uh, and it's hard to imagine uh, ending this thing otherwise. Does Ukraine have to accept that? Supposing we say ceasefire, um, uh, we've given Ukraine quite a bit of arms. Lately, uh, they're not necessarily going to drop their arms. Is is uh, are the uh, Russian occupied zones in Donetsk and Luhansk going to be free of attack by Ukrainians? Well, we could say, well, we cut off the aid. The Republicans are saying that. That provides, by the way, Zelensky with possible timeline here. Uh, if he foresees a week from now. The Republicans have come in and we're going to cut off his aid in January, as they promised to do, not cut it all off, but reduce it. Does that give him an incentive of the kind that leads state leaders to take chances? Yeah, do it now. Get as much get as much ground as I can right now or set this thing off. Let's get us into it. I'm not accusing him of this. I'm saying, is it possible 
that Zelensky would feel compelled or even be replaced by somebody that would do this? Yes, it is possible. So the world is on the brink of a possible, possible, not necessarily very likely, but possible nuclear war here. And when Russia claims that they're about to do uh, something terribly, um, you know, a dirty bomb idea, something very dramatic. Uh, if, you say, if the Ukrainians were doing that, as I've said earlier, it would presumably be to get the U.S. involved in a way it hasn't yet done, shooting at Russians from U.S. planes directly and U.S. missiles directly. Many Americans have called for that. Hillary Clinton called for a no-fly zone against Russian planes and, and others. Uh, Biden has so far resisted that. On the other hand, why was he doing things that were so provocative as, you know, everybody can see they are. To say that this is an unprovoked nation is like saying that what Khrushchev did uh, in Cuba was unprovoked. But as a matter of fact, Cuba was facing the prospects of a U.S. invasion. Uh, Operation Mongoose, invasion plans, uh, when he said he was trying to defend Cuba, we were like, oh, ridiculous. Who would invade Cuba after the Bay of Pigs? And what Khrushchev said was, after the Bay of Pigs, the U.S. will. Kennedy will want revenge. That's how he saw it, by the way. It's not as though Cuba matters that much to the U.S. security, but Kennedy had been terribly humiliated. He took responsibility for it. He did not do what I and everybody else practically thought he would do, give up on that. On the contrary, as Khrushchev and Castro both assumed, they will make every effort to do it right the next time. So the reports of at least there's some conversations going on amongst the top generals between U.S. and Russia, that's something. Um, should So should, should, in fact, the U.S. just call, even if it's a bluff, uh, call the Russians and, and start negotiations and then fight to include the Ukrainians, because there's no real deal if the Ukrainians don't agree. But shouldn't there be every, should, do you think there should be an effort one way or the other to get negotiations going right away? Oh, absolutely. I have no question about that. And that's in the face of the fact that I see what Putin has done as clear-cut aggression, uh, and that he has no right to be killing Ukrainians. Nothing, all the humiliations we've given him and the insults and the disrespect we've shown does not justify either the act of taking over Ukraine or part of it or the risks that the whole world is, uh, that that invokes. There's no justification for that. But it's, it's very, very difficult because in this case, unlike Cuba, um, there is, there is, are bodies being killed on both sides, uh, Ukraine and Russia, not yet Americans. Uh, the situation is very dicey and Putin is, was not, in my opinion, faced with an, even a, an existential risk to his regime before February 24th this year, but he is now because, you know, the steps he's taken. So clearly he is up against the wall uh, personally on this in domestic terms in, in Russia. Can that lead people to take terrible chances? Yes, uh, Americans and Russians. And uh, on the other side, uh, 
here's a, well, Ukraine is clearly a very big problem. You know, two things, I think, by the way, that, that um, are not taken into account. There's no reason to, th there's every reason to think that Putin did not expect to be getting into the situation he is in now, and the Russians are in now, and the Ukrainians are in now. The mass murder that is going on, they're now in Ukraine. Every indication is that both sides, the US and Russia, made a terrible intelligence miscalculation about the prospects of a Russian invasion. Both sides thought it would be like Crimea, maybe a little more. Nobody was killed in the, they're taking over Crimea, mainly Russian speaking. All right, some people would resist here, but they, every, both sides seem to have agreed that although guerrilla war might take place later, and we were preparing for that and training for it, that Russians would sweep over Ukraine very easily. So that meant that Vladimir Putin didn't take on himself, you know, this horrific uh, conflict. Uh, it was it was not what to say. Both sides were very bad on this one, and just in uh, figuring out how well the Russians would behave and how well the uh, Ukrainians would behave against them with the weapons we have. Okay, I do suspect, and new information may change me next week, next year. I won't be here ten years from now. That, but it might take that long. For the new information to come out as to what, why the U.S. has been doing what everybody regarded as legal but dangerous, highly pro provocative in the last 25 years of the expansion of NATO and the other uh, disregard of Russia's desires, interests, natural impulses and whatnot. Refusal, our refusal to regard Russia as an equal, and pardon me for saying it, this was a major aspect of the Cuban Missile Crisis as well. Are we equals or not? And the U.S. position then and now was, no, we are not. We can do things in your part of the world that you cannot do in our part of the world. There's an asymmetry there. We have a, we have a, sphere, a sphere, though we don't call it that. We call it the Monroe Doctrine uh, in this hemisphere. I don't know what we say in Indonesia or other places, but uh, in fact, some people accuse us of having a Monroe Doctrine that covers the whole world. But we, we act that way pretty much. And where Putin is saying, we have a sphere too. And in fact, he claims to believe that Ukraine is really part of Russia anyway. Certainly the Eastern part, the Donbass, that he has now claimed to be formerly part of Russia. So he's saying, we can decide who governs in this area. You can't. And we're saying, no, you can't. It's a sovereign nation, uh, and you don't have a right to do it, and we're not going to let you. I hate to believe this, but I do tentatively believe it at this point. I think that the U.S. government, uh, in several administrations, has certainly accepted a large conscious risk that their policies would lead to an invasion of Ukraine. Not a big bloody mess of a Ukraine, which is actually taking place, but a fast takeover of Ukraine, which would redefine Russia as again the enemy, like the Soviet Union, against whom we had to arm, 
against whom the Europeans had fined to us for their protection and to make again us hegemonic, not just in West Europe, but East and West Europe. And that what's happening now is not unwelcome to this administration or the previous ones. It's more than they expected. But in a way, that's all the better for business when it comes to selling weapons. Uh, all of the uh, weapons makers are, uh, their stock is increasing for good reason. All this year, uh, Lockheed, Raytheon, General Dynamics, uh, they're all, uh, they're all doing very well and selling to the Eastern Europeans, uh, right now to keep, to get them off Soviet weapons like Ukraine itself and onto American weapons as Poland is doing uh, in, a, in a big way. It does mean that our leaders are willing to risk it, to take serious, real, non-zero risks of that, as is happening right now. I don't know. I don't think that should be happening. And, uh, and I don't think we should take risks, genuine risks of nuclear war to, um, uh, allow Ukraine, or uh, I should say press Ukraine, to pursue this war to the point they claim they aim at, which is to expel every last Russian from former pre-2014 Ukrainian territory. They have a good right to do that and pressing that right uh, from you know, legal standards and nationalistic standards. But pursuing nationalism on that runs in to Russian nationalism and to uh, nuclear-armed power here, which can blow the world up. Yeah, there's not much, there's not, not much point in expelling every Russian from Ukra Ukrainian territory when there's no world to have a Ukraine in. Yeah. Putin has made the statement somewhat in the last year or so. Uh, what, when asked about the, the risk of the world blowing up, something that said, he said, what is the world without Russia? Well, uh, I think here that Russia to Putin means Putin. Uh, Russia, say moi. He's not the first to think that way. And uh, what is Russia without Putin um, to act on it? And uh, U.S. people have done the same. Remember most countries in Europe. Uh, what I'm saying is, but I think it's not only Ukraine that's the problem here in terms of maximal, uh, realistic and reasonable, but maximal aims of expelling every Russian. I think the U.S. is prepared to see the war go on, at least the Democrats under Biden, maybe because it's Biden, uh, the Republicans are taking the position, no, we don't give an unlimited check to Ukraine. And speaking about the current elections this week, could they be affecting uh, our policy on Ukraine? Let me say yes. We just saw a very strange phenomenon. 30 progressive Democrats, uh, led by Jayapal, Ramona Jayapal, and others, Alexandria Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, Ocasio 30 progressive Democrats called on the president to um, negotiate. Not to give in, not to accept any terms, not even to stop fighting. Just talk, negotiate, aim at a negotiated solution of some kind to this happen. 
And in an almost unprecedented way, they were pressed to back off from that, and they all did. In 24 hours, they rescinded the statement, except for Ro Khanna, who I give credit to. Said, it's a common sense position. It's the right position. And it is the right position. And these people know it. So why did they all deny it? And why was the pressure put on it uh, for this reasonable position? Why, why do we say no negotiations and so forth? Because November 6th is looming, and the Republicans right now have been led to say, we're going to cut aid. And I take it Pelosi and others felt, you don't want to sound like the Republicans were in an election year. So if they say something, uh, whether it's sensible or not, we can't look like them. So they have to withdraw. I mean, we paint ourselves into position, which Biden will find rather hard to get out of publicly. He can do it, but it cost to himself, which is we don't negotiate except on Zelensky's, and that means Ukrainian and right-wing Ukrainian terms. It isn't just the right wing now. Enough Ukrainians have clearly been killed by Russians that I think uh, the idea that they don't want Russians in their country is pretty widespread and that they're willing to fight for that and humanly understandable. The world is at stake on this one. So, yes, negotiation should be coming on. The Democrats should be calling for it and the president should be calling for it. And why isn't he? Okay, my best guess. Biden and people around him, uh, Sullivan and uh, all the others, Austin, are not anxious for this to end fast. It's, it's, it has no downside for them except for this risk of the world blowing up. But we've lived with that for years. And uh, we did in Cuba. We got out of it. And uh, not only then. So, um, meanwhile, it's very good. We're selling a lot of weapons. We're running NATO. We're uh, giving, sending a lesson for China on Taiwan and so forth. Very good. And the other ones who don't feel all that are being told, it's politics, guys. This is October. There's an election coming. We can't say what should be said. You can't do it. So it is having this effect. And for Biden to draw back from that is going to be pretty hard. So it could be that we go on to 2024 uh, with this uh, position. A bad situation. As uh, when Lavrov says, it's moving toward uncontrolled escalation. Um, I think that could very well be true. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Bad news, but uh, glad to talk with you. And thank you all for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget, there's a donate button. Get on the email list. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. Tell your friends. And uh, dangerous times. <laughs>